Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28 as we pick up where we left off in the book of Exodus. If you've been with us, you know uh, we're at the point now where God has given His uh, law to His people. He gave the Ten Commandments and then He gave other laws and statutes to them. Uh, He's now invited uh, Moses up the mountain to receive further instruction. And what you may have already noticed here is that uh, God is spending a lot of time teaching His people how to worship Him. When we think about the the book of Exodus, we tend to think about things like the Ten Commandments, and they're very important. God taught His people how they were to live as a saved people as they go to the Promised Land. But hopefully what you're seeing now unpacking is that God spends a far greater amount of time uh, teaching His people how they are to worship Him than telling them actually how they are to follow His will and to live. And so uh, we're going to pick up here in Exodus 28. Last week, uh, we looked at three chapters, at 25, 26, and 27, and kind of got the big picture of those. And I'm going to do that again today. Uh, Last Lord's Day, we looked at how uh, God established the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Uh, That was a foreshadowing of the temple. And today, we're going to look at how God establishes workers for the tabernacle, for that tent of meeting, uh, in His priest, specifically the high priest. And so we're going to look at two chapters, um, but I'm just going to read parts of these chapters for us as we prepare to hear from God's Word and to look at this study. So I had a reverence for God's Word. If you would stand together as I read some selections here from Exodus 28 and 29. We'll begin there with verse 1 of chapter 28 where we read this. God tells Moses, then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priest. And then if you'll move over to Exodus 29, we'll pick up there in verse 1. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priest. Then you go to verse 4, he says this, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and you shall put a holy crown on the turban. And you shall take anointing oil and pour it out on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And then we read this at the conclusion of that chapter, verse 43. There I will meet with my people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt 
that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. If you would, pray with me. Father God, we thank You that You are indeed the Lord. We thank You that You have given us Your holy Word that we might live according to it. We pray, God, as we look to it today, that You would help us to better understand this role of the priest and ultimately how that points us to Christ and ultimately how we are to live in Christ. And we ask this in His name. Amen. You may be seated. As I've mentioned before, as we look to Exodus, it's important that we keep in front of us kind of the big picture. That we kind of fit these things within it. In fact, for some of us, we might be at that point in Exodus where in the past, if you've done a, a Bible reading in a year, you kind of get to this point in Exodus, you might be tempted to, to skim over it, to move through it, not to spend a lot of time in it because there's a lot of details here. And it's easy for us to get lost in those details, but, but I think those details are important because they point us towards a bigger picture, and that's the picture that I want to look at today. It's the picture of salvation that we see in the book of Exodus. And we've talked about this before, how you see in the book of Exodus a group of people who are in slavery to a wicked king that can't save themselves. They're enslaved. And so God sends them a deliverer, Moses, who rescues them, brings them out of their slavery through the waters of the Red Sea, and they go on this journey towards the Promised Land. And on their way to the Promised Land, God teaches them how to live as a redeemed people, as a saved people. He not only takes them out of Egypt, He's seeking to take Egypt out of them. That is a picture for us of the Christian life. You and I, the Scripture says, were born in sin. In fact, the Scripture says we were slaves to sin. The Scripture says we could not save ourselves, but God sent us a deliverer in His Son, Jesus Christ, who rescued us, who saved us, who took us through the waters of baptism, and who now calls us to live in light of the land to come, the promised land. And he is making us less like who we used to be and more like Him, more like Christ. And so there's much we can learn as we look to this big picture of salvation among God's people. Specifically, as I've already mentioned, as we look to how God spent a lot more time talking to His people about how they were to rightly worship Him than He did as to how they were to live for Him. And that's important because we live in a context, I think, in the church today where we focus a lot of energy and effort on how we're to live for God. Well, what are we to do? And so often that's the question. Well, I want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, what does God want me to do here? God, what is your plan? And those are important questions. But sometimes we go straight to those questions without considering this major focus in the Scripture, which is that we were saved to worship God. And as a people who worship Him, then we are to live for Him. A.W. Tozier, you might be familiar with his book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It's a great work on the attributes of God. But in speaking of worship, he said this, I am of the opinion that we should not be concerned about working for God until we have learned the meaning and the delight of worshiping Him. He went on to write this, We are saved to worship God. All that Christ has done for us in the past and all that He is doing now leads to this one end. And so friends, we are saved to worship. Israel was saved to worship. Now I know in the movie version, we're used to Moses saying to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. But remember what the Scripture says. The Scripture actually says, God is telling Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, that 
they might go and serve me. That they might go and worship me. That's the purpose for which they were saved. And integral in that purpose is the tabernacle and the priest. And so today as we consider God's instruction about these priests, I hope that they will better understand what God was doing here and how this pointed us to Jesus and how ultimately this applies to our lives today. So we'll begin with the first point there in your notes. We see here that God established priests for His service in the tabernacle. God established priests for His service in the tabernacle. That, that's what we're reading about here in these two chapters. And so God tells Moses, bring your brother Aaron. We remember Aaron from previous uh, things here in Exodus. So he's there with Moses. says, bring your brother Aaron. Bring his sons with him from among the people. They're going to serve as priests. Now, there will be a distinction here. We'll see as we continue in the passage that Aaron is going to be set aside as the high priest. Now, we've talked about the high priest before. He's the one who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement each year and offer that sacrifice on behalf of God's people. And so he'll have a very significant role to play as the high priest. It says his sons, they will be priests as well. And then the rest of chapter 28, the entire chapter, talks about their garments. It talks about what they're going to wear, what they're going to adorn themselves with. It gives very specific instructions for very good reasons. We could spend week after week going through all of these, but again, I want us to get the big picture today. So notice what God tells Moses there in verse 2. He says, You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. And so there's three words that stick out to us there in verse 2. These garments are to symbolize holiness, uh, they are to symbolize glory, and they are to be beautiful. And so we see that that holiness, we've studied this word before in the Scripture, to, to be holy meant to be set apart, and not for common use. Uh, this was something that was very special. We see God calls His people to be holy. And what does that mean? Well, it means they're not to live like everybody else. He's taking them to the land of promise. They're going to interact with all these pagan nations along the way. And God says to them, listen, I don't want you to be like them. You are holy. You are set apart. Christian, your life should look different than the world around you. God has called us to be a holy people. We are to be set apart. And so God here, in describing these garments, the very first thing He says is these are, these are holy garments. These are set apart. These are just for the high priest. And these are to be symbolic. They are point, to point people towards the holiness of God. And not just that, but notice what else He says. He says they are they're to be for glory. That, that word glory literally means weighty. It means heavy. But, but it's not saying, okay, these garments are going to weigh a lot. No, it's saying the significance of them is they're, they're, there's a weighty significance. This is for the glory of God. God's glory is a weighty thing. It's a significant thing. It is the gravity of the glory of God. It's the gravity of this office that's been set apart for this very holy purpose. And so these garments, this clothing, it was to indicate holiness. It was to indicate glory. But not just that. He says it's for beauty. And he gives great descriptions here about how they were to be made of, of white linen and decorated with all these colorful yarns with gold and blue and purple and scarlet. And you may recognize these are the same colors that were to be used in the making of the tabernacle. 
These were the same colors that were to be used in the tent of meeting. The furniture there was made of gold. That there were white linen curtains that were embroidered with blue and purple and scarlet. And so what the high priest would wear would point people towards the tabernacle. Well, what he would wear would identify him with the tabernacle, with God's sacred space. And so these garments were to be holy. They were to symbolize glory. They were to have beauty. But these weren't just things reserved for these garments. These ultimately were to point people towards God. And and these are attributes of God. God is holy. He he is set apart. His holiness sets Him apart. And that's why we see in creation when Adam and Eve sin and rebel against God, He he removes them from His presence. Why? Because they are sinful. They are not righteous. They can't dwell in His presence. He is holy. That's why the Scripture, when it refers to our sin, it says that we've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory, His holiness, His purity. He is set apart. And of course, with that, He is glorious. Isaiah says both of these in Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And so we see that these attributes, these, these attributes of God are pictured in the garments that the high priest was to wear. The holiness, the glory, and then of course the beauty. And David in Psalm 27 cries out, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after Him, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. There's this wonderful picture in a book I read years ago. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Great Divorce. It's not about marriage and divorce. It's about how sin separates us from God. It's a fictional account. It's very fascinating. Uh, Basically, it's about a group of people who, again, this is fiction, they, they are able to be transported from hell to heaven. And they're able to experience the glory of heaven and compared with what took place in hell. And in this story, the way that Lewis describes it, he talks about how everything in heaven is so much more real than the things they've experienced before. And so just a blade of grass seems so sturdy and so sharp and so much more real than anything they walked on before because it's just the reality of heaven and as they try to absorb and take in all the beauty of heaven, they almost can't stand it. They're eaten up because they're used to being in hell. We can only imagine the beauty and the splendor that awaits us. And here God is giving His people just just a glimpse just a portrait in the garments that the priest wore of His holiness, of His glory, and of this beauty. And then he goes on to give other detail. Notice there in verses 9 and 10, he talks about these onyx stones. These would have been large stones. In the text here, basically these onyx stones were put into the garment on each of the shoulders. And they could actually engrave things on these stones. And so what God tells Moses to do there in verses 9 and 10 is He said you should engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. And so the twelve tribes of Israel, the names of these tribes, six were put on one shoulder, six were put on the other shoulder, and this was significant. 
Because when the priest would go in to make the offering each year for the sin of the people, he was going as their representative. He was literally bearing their names on his shoulders as he would go in and would make this sacrifice on behalf of the people. Now that's a beautiful picture of the Gospel, but in the context here of Exodus 28 and 29, there's a serious problem here. And the problem's this. How could Aaron go into the Holy of Holies seeking to make atonement for God's people who were sinners when he himself was a sinner? How could Aaron as a sinful person go in and make a sacrifice? Well, God starts to deal with that problem here because He requires them to make a sacrifice for the high priest. And so Aaron here is not perfect. He's not righteous. He was a sinner. And so you notice there as we get into Exodus 29, a bull and two rams needed to be sacrificed for him. That There's that imagery here that we've talked about before with sacrifice where Aaron would literally take that bull by the horns and he would touch his head to its head. It was a symbol, it was a picture of that bull now is going to die in his place for his sin. But again, this falls short, doesn't it? Aaron did not become a righteous person after that sacrifice was made. And in fact, in just a few chapters, what are we going to see Aaron do? Aaron's going to lead God's people and putting their gold all together, melting it down, forming the image of a golden cow of an idol, and leading the people and worshiping a false god. And so it's very clear to us that, that this sacrifice that was altered for Aaron, these sacrifices on behalf of the people, they were pointing them towards something that they weren't the actual atonement themselves. And that's what God makes clear in Isaiah 1. We read this in verse 11. God says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. In Hebrews 10 we read, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so we have to be careful here because what, what we see happening is the high priest would adorn themselves externally with all these things that indicated the beauty of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God. But those things didn't cover their sinful hearts. And so it's clear to us when we read verses like, I don't delight in bulls, the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I think that makes it easy for us today to go, okay, those sacrifices obviously didn't appease God. And yet, I think we find ourselves in a culture where we're doing similar things. We try to cover our sin externally. We try to cover ourselves with morality. We try to cover ourselves with religion. We try to cover ourselves with benevolence. We try to cover ourselves with this notion that if I can just do enough good to outweigh my bad, I'll be okay. And it's ingrained in our DNA. And so what's our conversation so often about those who've passed on? Well, they were a good person. Well, if anybody deserves heaven, they do. And so often we, we say these things in the very church where we preach the Gospel which says it's not about how good we are or what we did, it's about what Christ did on our behalf. And so as we see the priest going in, he's putting all these things on externally, but God is showing the people very clearly those things don't give him a clean heart. That the blood of these sacrifices don't even give him a clean heart. So, so what was the purpose of them? Well, the purpose is this. Point two there in your outline. God was pointing them towards Jesus. 
Jesus is the great high priest who served God perfectly. And so the big picture here is this. God establishes this office of priest. The priest would be the mediator for the people of God. The priest would go in and make sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. And yet the priest was a sinner. The priest needed a Savior just like the people. And so when Jesus comes, the Messiah comes, we see that not only is He their Savior, He's the great high priest who serves perfectly. Now, have you ever heard someone say, well, nobody's perfect. How many, raise your hand if you've ever heard anybody say nobody's perfect. Anybody ever said nobody's perfect? Okay. Well, what's the context that we normally say that in when we've done such a good job? <laughs> I mean, do we normally say that when we've done something really well and we're just being real humble? Well, you know, nobody's perfect, but I know I did a pretty good job there. Yeah. When, when do we say that? When we've messed up. <laughs> When we've done something wrong, maybe we've tried something, we've attempted it, and it's just utterly failed in front of us. Or maybe there's a situation where, where we really we were trying to do the right thing, we were trying to walk the line, we were trying to behave, we were trying to, to not do whatever it is we told somebody we would never do again, and then we find ourselves right back in the same place we said, I'll never do this again. And whether we say it out loud or not, it goes through our mind. Well, nobody's perfect. But you see, the thing is, somebody was perfect. See, Jesus Christ is perfect. And the reason that, 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 that Jesus is our great high priest is because he, He's the one who did perfectly what everyone else failed at. God established a garden, a sanctuary, a tabernacle there in Eden. He gave Adam and Eve instructions. He says, this is how you are to worship me. And he said to them what? Don't eat of that tree. There was a boundary there. There was a reminder there. He was God. They were not. And what did they do? Did they obey Him perfectly? No. They disobeyed Him. And you walk down the line, and it's in our DNA from there to now. We inherit that sin nature. And some of you might think sometimes, well, that doesn't seem very fair. I mean, to just say that I'm guilty because of what someone else did, okay. Then just go live a perfect life. I mean, just decide to do it. Like, let's go ahead and make a commitment now. In case you ever wondered, I do have a clock up here. I just don't pay attention to it. But... Uh, 11.45, November the 12th, 2017, Bloomfield Baptist Church decided we were going to be perfect people. I'd say most of you have already failed. I can't even hear what you're thinking right now. but We can't, we can't just will ourselves to be perfect. We can't just decide I'm going to be perfect. And so we need one who is perfect to be perfect on our behalf. And that's exactly what Jesus did. That's why the writer of Hebrews makes this clear in Hebrews 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a great high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. 
And so the writer of Hebrews says, okay, you go back to Exodus, and what did God do? God said, Moses, go instruct the people, set up this tent. So now the people are going to put this tent together. And then God instructs Moses, okay, Moses, now get Aaron, he's going to be the high priest. Here, here's what you need to do. Here's how you make the sacrifices. Here's the garment you put on him. So Aaron's going to go do these things. But what happens? The people still sin. The people still fall short. And so over and over and over again, they have to keep making these sacrifices. I mean, my goodness, you just, you just try. As you walk through the Scripture, especially when you get to when they, they build the temple and you look at everything that was sacrificed there, 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 there's blood everywhere. There's sacrifice after sacrifice everywhere. Why? Because there's no end to the sin of man. But yet the Scripture tells us Jesus. Jesus is the one who could offer up a sacrifice once and for all in a true tent that the Lord had set up, not man. And so you think about that imagery we see there in the priest's garments. They were to be holy. Friends, Jesus is holy. Jesus is righteous. Writer Hebrews says it this way, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a great high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Jesus is perfectly righteous. So not only is He qualified then to go in and offer up the sacrifice as the great high priest, He is the sacrifice as the great high priest. He is holy. He is righteous. Writer of Hebrews goes on to say, he, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. And so Jesus is the perfect high priest, the perfect sacrifice, and that's why the Scripture can make this wonderful, wonderful promise to us. 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the good news of the Gospel is today, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to try to be perfect. The good news of the Gospel is today, you can put your hope and your trust in the One who is perfect already. And not just perfect, we see, just like in that imagery of those garments, Jesus is glorious. Hebrews chapter 1, the writer of Hebrews says He is the radiance of the glory of God. John says it this way in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But it's not just holiness and glory, just like we said, imagery in those garments of, of beauty. Jesus is beautiful that the beauty of the garments pointed to the beauty of the tabernacle, which ultimately points to the beauty of Christ. And so you had this gold lampstand there, this, this beautiful, ornate lampstand to give light into the tabernacle. Jesus is the true light of the world. You had this table there, ornate, covered in gold. It had the, 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 the table for the bread that would be there, the bread of presence there in the tabernacle. Jesus is the one who's the true bread of life. 
as you walked into those curtains into the courtyard to, to, to walk up towards the altar, there was this enormous bronze altar where the sacrifices took place. Jesus is the true and better altar. He is Himself the sacrifice. We see that Jesus is the holy, glorious, beautiful high priest who then does what? He represents us before God. And so remember those onyx stones? They were on the shoulders of the high priest that had the names of the tribes on them so that when the priest went in to make that offering, he was going on behalf of the people. John chapter 19, in describing the crucifixion of our Lord, John says that they took the cross and they put it where? They put it on His shoulders. See, Jesus, He bore our names as well. When the sacrifice was made in the holies of holy, before a holy God once and for all, Jesus on that cross, He bore our names on His shoulders. He bore our sin. And not just that, there's so much imagery there in John chapter 19 when the soldiers put the crown of thorns on Him in that purple robe. They're, they're mocking Jesus. And, and oftentimes we look at that as they're, they're mocking Him as a king. But I think they're also mocking Him there as a high priest. You go back and look at Exodus 28 and 29. You see how the, the high priest was clothed and what was on his head and what was on his shoulders. He, he wore, in the Scripture there it says blue, but the Hebrew, that word really means purple yarn. He wore a purple seamless robe. When the high priest went into the holies of holy, he had this purple seamless robe. What does John tell us about what Jesus had on? It says when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garment, they divided it into four parts, one part for each shoulder, also His tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. It was that purple tunic that they had put on Him. They didn't even know in their mockery the imagery there that this was Jesus as the great high priest dying for the sin of man. The great high priest who served perfectly. He did what we cannot do. And now, this side of the Gospel, we have the opportunity now to, to live in Christ. Which brings us to the last point there in your outline. So we see that that God establishes the priest for His service. We see how Jesus is the high priest. Now we see point three. How in Christ, we are now priests set apart for His service. Do you realize that in the New Testament, the word priest applies to all of us as Christians? I realize some of you grew up in different backgrounds, different churches, different teachings. Churches where you probably didn't walk in and say, well, hey, I'm a priest, you're a priest, we're all priests. <laughs> but that's how the Scripture refers to us in the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.9 we read, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, again, you're set apart, a people for His own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous lights. Where well, we are a royal priesthood. We talked about Martin Luther just a couple of weeks ago, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This is what Luther referred to as the priesthood of all believers. You can imagine how well that phrase went in the Roman Catholic Church of his day. But he was teaching what the Scripture said. 
He taught that we are all priests. If anyone's a Christian, they are indeed a priest. And that is what the Scripture teaches. And as such, we see again this imagery continue. So in the tabernacle, the priest would, would wear these garments that were holy and they indicated glory and beauty. We see how Christ is holy, how He lived for the glory of God. You could see it in Him. We see the beauty of Christ. Well, now we see as Christians, we are called to be holy as well. 1 Thessalonians 4.7 says, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So you're not in Egypt anymore. God's rescued you from that. So often we, we, we look back, we're fond of, even God's people, what do they do on the Exodus? Oh, if we could be back there where our bellies were full, it was so good back there. No, it was slavery. They were throwing your babies into a river to, 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 to worship a false god. What do you mean it was good back there? But that's what we so often do in our sin. We, we romanticize our sin. What do we see in 1 Peter? Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your context, such as it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now notice the order here is so important. God did not call out to His people in Egypt and say, okay, it's time for me to give you the Ten Commandments. It's time for me to tell you how to live. It's time for me to tell you how to build a tabernacle and the priest. I'm going to give you all these instructions on how you're to live as a holy set-apart people now while you're there in your slavery. No, that's not what God did. Why? Because they were in slavery. They couldn't do those things. And Pharaoh understood that. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, let the people go so they can go worship. They need to go worship and go serve. they got to get out of here to go there. And so God doesn't come to us in our sin and say, okay, today, all right, Richard, it's time to get perfect and clean yourself up. I can't tell you how many times I've had people say to me, well, yeah, Pastor, I'm just really trying to clean myself up. I don't know a gracious way to say it. I want to say, well, you stink still. You know? And I do too. The gospel isn't ivory soap. The gospel isn't put on this tunic. The gospel isn't clean yourself up. The gospel isn't go work out and get better and look better and do better. The gospel is you need a new heart. You need to be radically changed from the inside. That's why the picture of the Gospel in the Old Testament is we're born with a heart of stone, we need a heart of flesh. And then when our heart starts to beat, then we can live for the glory of God and not for ourselves. And so here we see this call in the Scripture that we're called to live set apart holy lives. Why? Because we've been redeemed. We've been saved. Now we can do these things. So our good works don't save us, but our salvation then does what? It allows us to do good works. And so we trust in Christ, not in ourselves, so that we might live holy, set apart lives. We see that imagery in the Old Testament, in the garments of the priest, of the glory of God. We see how in Christ we behold the glory of God. Now, friends, we are called, we are set apart to live for the glory of God. We are priests. 1 Corinthians 10, so whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. 
Friends, that means that that there's not a millisecond of your life that is yours to do with as you please. I realize we, we, we live in this phraseology of, you know, well, I finally got some me time. This is some me time. That the Scripture says, no, all of our time is given to us that we might live it for the glory of God. Is your life bringing glory to God today? If a diary were kept of your words in the last 24 hours, did they bring glory? Did you bring glory to God in what you said? If we had hidden cameras on each of our lives and suddenly, and you watch mine and I watched yours, we'll be standing back going, wow. <laughs> That person's living for the glory of God. Do your actions, does your attitude bring glory to God? Your work, the way you treat your family, does the way you respond to adversity and suffering and trial, does it bring God glory? God's word is clear. Whatever we do, we do we are to do it for the glory of God. Again, as an unredeemed person, we can't do this. <laughs> but now in Christ, we can. And not just that. Again, we see this picture of these garments as holy and God's glory, but also there's, there's beauty there. So well, what does that mean? How, how, are we need, how are we now set apart for beauty? <laughs> this isn't talking about what's on the outside. This isn't talking about how we look. It's talking about something much more significant than that, I believe. We are set apart to, to share true beauty with others through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 10.15 says this, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Friends, do you remember that moment that you first understood the gospel of our Lord Jesus, just how beautiful it was to you? Do you remember what it was to realize that you couldn't, you didn't have to try anymore, you didn't have to work at it, that, that, that Jesus was perfect and He died in your place on that cross? Do you remember what it was just to see that the beauty of the gospel for the first time? And God says to us, we have an opportunity to have a front row seat to that beauty, to that picture as people's eyes are opened and their hearts believe and their, their dead hearts removed and a new heart's put in its place. When we witness, when we share the Gospel, we get to witness these things. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to see. I remember sitting down with a young man named Eric number of years ago, Eric was coming from a very hard background. Eric had tried to fill his life with so many things. He had sought to fill the void in his heart and his life with relationships, but one after one those failed. They, they didn't fulfill him. He, he turned to substances, alcohol, and then drugs. He found those things. In the end, they didn't fulfill him. 
He kept looking for significance and meaning somewhere and I had the opportunity to sit down with him and a friend of his and just talk about the gospel of Christ and to see God do this beautiful work in his life where, where he saw it. I mean, he grew up in a religious home. He grew up here in Kentucky. But nobody had ever just opened up the gospel for him before and to see the Holy Spirit of God at work in this young man's life is for the first time his eyes were open and he believed and he confessed, I want Jesus to be my Lord. I want to turn from all this this nonsense and I want to trust in Christ. I remember in those early days sitting down with him, having lunch with him and and asking him how it was going and his entire countenance had just changed. He was this guy who previously, I'd never seen him smile before. He's just grinning ear to ear. And I said, Eric, what are you so excited about? I'll never forget, he said, Richard, for the first time in my life, I can breathe. That's what the gospel was for him. It's like I can breathe for the first time. I can live. I can see. And then he wanted just to he went on just to describe the beauty of the gospel. Friends, God could have easily, in the moment he saved us, taken us home. And there may be days where you, you hope and pray for that very thing because of the wickedness and the suffering in this world. But He didn't do that. He's left us here for a reason. He, he's called us to live as a holy, set-apart people. So repent. and Just be done with these things. He's called us to live for His glory and not for our own. He, he's called us to share the beauty of the Gospel so that Eyes might be open and hearts might believe. That's the call He's placed on our lives as priests in Christ in the lineage of this royal priesthood that we see established in Exodus 28 and 29. So let's take this call seriously. Let's take this call prayerfully. Let's take this call worshipfully as we respond to Him through our worship and through our prayer. If you would stand together as I pray for us. And as we worship. Father, I thank You for the clarity of the Gospel. I thank You, Lord, that You've not called us today to clean ourselves up. That You've not called us today to vow to try harder. But that You've called us today to repent and trust in Jesus, the great High Priest. I thank You, Lord, that now in Christ we are a royal priesthood. That in Christ we are now set apart from the world around us. That in Christ we can can live for Your glory. That in Christ we can share the, the beautiful news of the Gospel with others. So Father, I pray as we worship that You would put these things on our hearts. If there's sin that needs to be repented of, I pray it would. If there are people we need to share the Gospel with, Lord, I pray we would pray for them by name and that we would step out in faith and that we would trust You with the results, but that we would have hard conversations and tell them about the good news of Jesus. Lord, I pray You would use us as a light in a very dark and dying world. I pray, God, for anyone here who, who, who doesn't understand these things, who, who needs to talk more about them, that they would come and talk with me or another pastor today, that I might pray with them, might counsel them, might share Your truth with them. For others, Lord, who might be considering church membership, other things they need to pray about, Lord, we lift them up to you, encourage them to come as well. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.